When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. History Teachers Talking Podcast short lectures have now grown up and moved to their own channel. Don't forget to subscribe to our new podcast, History Shorts, wherever you're listening to this episode. Meanwhile, thanks for listening to History Teachers Talking, and here is your newest episode. This is Peter. And this is Tom. And you're listening to History Teachers Talking Podcast. Part of the Evergreen Podcast Network. All right, this is Peter Zablocki and Thomas Reska, and welcome back to our podcast. I'm actually surprised we have not done this one. Well, he was mentioned a few times in some of our other plans. We talked about D-Day when we talked about Operation Unthinkable and all the like invasions that didn't take yeah. place. And we're going to be talking about George S. Patton, right? Probably one of the most famous generals, American generals of all time. His name people still remember not only from what he does in World War II, but also from the movie that came out, I believe, in the 60s. That was... Uh, the Smithsonian actually keeps a historical artifact, like that famous. Wasn't scene it 1970? I think it was 1970, wasn't it? It was 1970, yeah. So yeah, 1970, yeah. starring uh, George C. Scott, which some people have always see. They always show like Veterans Day and things of that nature. That opening scene is parodied in so many other like under the Simpsons parody at South Park parody when he's like walking in front of the giant American flag giving that speech. Like it's just a very well known scene in that movie. But yeah, so we'll do a little bit of a deep dive into George Patton, how he grew up, and then obviously his um, exploits in war, which is really what he becomes known for. When his death happened at the end of World War II, it was kind of like the end of an era. A lot of people write like, well, he wouldn't have been able to survive very well in that post-war world because his mouth got him in trouble a lot too. We'll, yeah. we'll talk about that too about Patton, especially look at some of his quotes. And But his mouth, as great for Jones he was and the great success he had, his mouth definitely got him in trouble in politics, without a doubt. Yep. He was a general, not a politician. Yep. A few things about it, just going back to the movie real quick. I feel like a lot of people believe they know about Patton just from watching that movie yeah. because it is a movie, like you said, that's pretty much on TV every single year around Veterans Day or around, you know, Memorial Day, so on and so forth. And it's like that with many movies, but I feel like specifically with Patton, people associate fiction with the real thing. Like, you know, because it was such a good performance that yeah. people just think that that is, that's what happened. That was Patton. But like, it wasn't. That was George C. Scott. And the crazy thing about that is it, not only was Patton a slightly controversial figure, which we'll talk about today, but so was George C. Scott because he got an Oscar for that performance, a Best Actor Oscar, right, for Patton, and he refused it. Uh, he would not accept any Oscars because he believed in his like principles and that every dramatic performance was totally unique and cannot be compared to another. Our historians say, you know, George C. Scott had a very deep, scratchy, gravelly, scratchy voice and becomes iconic. And that was not Patton's voice. Patton's yeah. voice was more nasally, kind of high pitched, almost like squeaky and stuff like that. George C. Scott asked Patton curses throughout the movie. And like Patton, they said he didn't really curse that often. Like he did if he needed, but he only did it as like for like effect. It yeah. wasn't part of his normal like uh, vernacular. And also, when he's wearing all those medals, those are all medals that Patton won, but he never, ever in his life wore all those medals at once. Like that was not his thing. Like yeah. he about like showing off. They, they kind of show him as more of a, he wanted to prove himself which is something that you see a lot with these generals 
know, you think of like Roosevelt, like Teddy Roosevelt always wanted to prove himself. Like they want to prove their worth. And that was something that Patton was very big on, which we'll get into. But it wasn't something that he really showed off. They just did that for the opening scene. It just kind of stuck. So yeah, that's kind of that history versus Hollywood that you see in a lot of these types of movies. But a lot of the other the events that took place in the movie did actually happen. So the, yeah. all that stuff was true. So today we're going to give you the real George S. Patton. His middle name, by the way, is George Smith Patton Jr. Born in 1885. Um, November 11th. Right. Becomes. I, I, when I saw that, I was like, oh, that's pretty interesting because that becomes Veterans Day, obviously. Yep. Not when he was born, but he, he becomes Veterans Day. So he's actually, that's kind of. I don't know. Ironic, I guess. I think it's so. Yeah, I think it's ironic in a great scheme of things. As a child, they said that he had a very hard time learning how to read. He was dyslexic. Yeah, probably undiagnosed. But he did come from a very privileged home. He had his family had money from they lived in California. They had money. Well, also, his father was a military man as well. And he himself, by the time he was a teenager, really wanted to go to West Point, but he didn't get into West Point. So he started looking at different cadet programs around the nation. And he was actually accepted to Princeton College. And he thought about it for a hot second, but then he was like, nah. So instead, he picked his father, alma mater, Virginia Military Institute. So both his father and grandfather had attended that school. So he goes to school in 1903 to 1904 and initially struggles. They said it pretty much struggles in writing, which is ironic because later on he winds up struggling in math. But he winds up struggling a little bit, but does really well in all the military stuff. What winds up happening is because he does so well at the VMI, a senator winds up nominating him for West Point. Once he's at West Point, he does fairly well with writing and reading. And now his academic performance suffers really because of the fact that he does not do well in math. So he winds up failing mathematics, which is a required course at West Point, and has to actually repeat his first year at West Point. Yeah, but he, but he does succeed. But his academic performance does improve. So, you know, keep on trying out there, right? And he does graduate eventually in um, June of 1909, I believe, right? And he comes out and he's involved in the cavalry. And this is because he studied the Civil War extensively when he was younger. He actually had a great uncle who had fought for the Confederacy and died for the Confederacy. You know, a great uncle. He was a big historian, military man already at that point. And so he joins the cavalry and a second lieutenant and then goes on to get married. He marries someone by the name of uh, Beatrice Banning Iyer. She was actually the daughter of an um, industrial tycoon. She designs a cavalry sword. It's actually a sword in the cavalry named after him called the Patton Sword. It's the U.S. Model 1913 Enlisted Cavalry Saber. Like He was an excellent swordsman, and he actually competed in the Olympic Games in Sweden in 1912, the modern uh, pentathlon, which includes swimming, pistol shooting, running, and fencing. And he doesn't medal, but he comes in fifth out of 42 people, which is pretty good. And fencing is his best one. His best, yeah, that's uh, what he's best this thing, yeah. He's a, yeah. He's, a, he's a master swordsman. So he does awesome in fencing at the 1912 Olympics, right? Represents the United States. So they're in Sweden, and the first four spots go to Swedish players, you might say, or athletes. A little fishy, a little fishy. A little fishy, right? And he comes in in fifth. However, one of the reasons for it is because during the shooting, pistol shooting competition, everybody else, specifically the Swedes, wind up using 22 caliber firearms, but he insisted on the U.S. Army issue pistol because he was a big U.S. Army guy. So he fired a 38 caliber. And what ends up happening is the holes that were on the paper were much larger because he used the bigger caliber. So what he was trying to say is that my shots that you know may hit the target right on the spot on the paper actually went through the same hole without making another hole. And they didn't believe him. They're like, no, you actually missed the target completely on some of your shots. He's like, no, I didn't. I just kept on making it right through the middle. 
And since then, they've actually changed this. So there really is like another moving backdrop that's specifically designed to track multiple shots like that go through the same hole. But obviously it didn't exist in 1912. But had they counted those shots, he would have meddled between that and the fact that he did fairly well in the fencing aspect. I think they should just give him the medal now. Forget it. Who cares? Just give him the medal. Yeah. He's yeah, young at this point. He's a young guy. Yeah, he's very young. He's you know, newly married. He also gets involved in uh, polo, which is almost like hockey on horseback, I guess you could say. Yeah, right. More or less right. Yeah, yeah. And um, gets hurt a lot playing polo. He probably got a lot of head trauma that wasn't totally diagnosed in like, 1912, 1913. They might explain some of his erratic behavior later in life because he had all these head trauma. Like you think like, you know, the football players falling and stuff like and, that. Yeah. 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 He's falling off a horse and smacking his head against things. He would just get right back up and get back on. He's like, I'm fine. But it probably did have some effects on him later on in life. First of all, he's supposed to go to the 1916 Olympics again, represent the United States. Those never happened. They're canceled because of World War One. However, in 1915, he gets himself what? assigned, right, to John Pershing's staff. He gets sent to Fort Riley. And yeah. while he's there, Pancho Villa, which I don't think we've ever talked about before, maybe a little bit which here. Which we should, uh, yeah. Mexican revolutionary. He basically attacked the border town of Columbus, New Mexico in 1916. Patton joins the staff of John G. Pershing. Yep. And there's the expeditionary force that goes into Mexico trying to find Pancho Villa. They never do. But Patton becomes famous. He does lead a raid that kills three of Pancho Villa's men. But why is it but, famous? Well, uh-huh. it's the first time that automobiles are used in combat by the U.S. Army. Yeah. And Patton sees this. He understands this. And he's just like, this is going to be the new wave. He's like, horses are not going to be able to compete with the speed and maneuverability of automobiles. And then when the tanks start summer, when we start seeing more tanks in World War One. Right, he really becomes enamored with understanding, learning, and really a forefather in tank warfare. And that's really what he becomes known for is this mobile force, this mechanized force replacing horses and soldiers just, you know, on the field itself. Like he he recognizes pretty soon that that linear warfare is not going to work with this mechanization that they're seeing in, in war. He gets valuable experience in World War One. He winds up becoming the first American to be trained. In to, tank warfare, yeah. In tank warfare, yep. In and he, France. He, he, and he leads the first uh, tank, American tanks in battle in France. And gets 19, hurt. Well, he gets hurt, well, because he's kind of, he disobeys direct orders, ignores the orders to stay in radio contact, and led this uh, first uh, offensive. And he um, actually does get badly wounded by machine gun bullet. And he was stuck in, like, in a foxhole for like seven or eight hours. They said yeah. until it was safe to evacuate him. And he's still at this point. And again, this is what's with legend, right? He refused to be taken to the hospital until he reported to his commander. He said, I have to report my commander before I can, you know, be treated yeah. for this wound. He was promoted to temporary rank of colonel and was awarded the uh, service cross for bravery under fire. So this is the beginning of him getting a lot of actual combat medals, too. The public knows him in World War II, but the military establishment knows him from the raid World with Contravia and then yeah. World War I. They all know each other. Pershing, you know, Marshall, all the guys that you're going to talk about later on, MacArthur, right? Eisenhower. Eisenhower. Yeah, they all meet here. They they know, they know of Patton. What happens in World War I, though, so after Pancho Villa, where he joins John Pershing's staff, he really looked up to John Pershing. He kind of really, you know, wanted to be like that commander. The reason for it is John Pershing was known as a commander to lead from the front. He always went forward. Like he rode in front of the line and never really hidden in a trench somewhere. And that's kind of what Patton really looked up to. So he became his aide for that expedition. He did really well. And then World War I happens, and John Pershing is named the Supreme Commander of the American Expeditionary Forces. And who does he call upon but 
George S. Patton. And George S. Patton initially is like going to be given a desk job kind of thing. Then they were like, you're going to lead some infantry. He's like, I don't want to lead infantry. Like that was not his thing. So he is chosen by Pershing. All right, fine. You could go and, and establish this new American expeditionary force light tank school because tanks were just coming out. So he leaves for Paris, reporting to this French army tank school, and he learns from the French on basically how tank warfare works, how tanks work, and he learns how to ride tanks. In fact, when the first tanks were delivered to his new unit that he was creating in France, he was the only one that could drive those tanks down from the ramp. The trains came, and he was the only one that could actually take those tanks off the train because no one knew how to drive them. Yeah, so the war's over, right? And, you know, he kind of makes a name for himself right? after World War uh, One ends. A lot of the establishment still sees tank as more of inf- infantry support. He doesn't. He's like, no, they they should be their own independent fighting force. And he supports a lot of designs like the M1919 tank design, which mm-hmm. is like kind of like a precursor. to. I'm not going to get into details on this, but it's... Uh, it's pretty it's sure one of the first American tanks. Yeah. Yeah. And so he's looking at those and he is also during this time he's on duty in Washington, D.C., where he first meets Eisenhower, like we talked about. And yeah. they kind of play a role in each other's careers. Him and Eisenhower, they send correspondence That's he help to him each get other. through school. Yeah, he helped Eisenhower actually uh, get to school, but throw off his uh, correspondence and graduate from the General Staff College. And then Eisenhower remembers this naturally when Patton's causing all these problems in World War II, like politically. I guess you could say. Yeah. Eisenhower kind of comes to his aid. He's like, no, I know this guy. We're going to need people like him. It's all demilitarized budget at this point, right? There's a lot of oh, yeah. America's demilitarization yeah, yeah. Uh, at this point. but So he's going to get the limited military budget that is there to look into making more armor. They don't really do this until 1940 when they're seeing yeah. the buildup for everything else. So for the next 20 years or so, they're listening to him, but they're not listening to him, if that makes sense. Like he's yep. getting these audiences. He's getting to say his points. But no one's really taking it seriously really because the money's not there. It's really interesting about the way he designs these tank units, the armored division. He does have infantry assigned to his armored units, which he would send out like small pockets of soldiers with Browning machine guns ahead of his tanks to try to find all the Germans that had the anti-tank rockets. And he basically would send out uh, these little groups of men to dislodge the Germans hiding in the woods from firing at his tanks. And then he would come with the tank. So it's almost like he used it backwards to how it was initially designed because when the British designed British and French designed the tank in World War One. It was simply designed as a means to have an infantry hide behind it as it advanced forward through no man's land. And here is Patton in 20 years later using the infantry to clear the path for the tanks in many instances, which I thought was kind of interesting. What Patton does kind of become known for here, and it's not necessarily a good thing, that is the bonus march. But before I get to the bonus march, I'm sure you saw this. When he was assigned briefly, they assigned him to Hawaiian Division in Honolulu in 1925. And he flat out says that if anybody ever wanted to attack the United States and start a war against the United States, they would do it here. If there's ever a war, someone's going to attack Pearl Harbor to start it. And he says this years before the attack Pearl Harbor. Because there's so much, there's so much. Concentrated, you know. It's just concentrated in one spot. It wasn't heavily defended. You could get to it. It was isolated. Like, and you can knock out the American Pacific fleet in maybe like a blow, like one, one, one well-coordinated attack. So yeah, he gets called back by uh, Douglas MacArthur, another name yeah. from this World War II. I think we did talk about the bonus army, the bonus marshal force. We these podcasts on it. These yeah. were World War One veterans, right? That wanted their bonus checks early because of the Great Depression. He's actually called in by Douglas MacArthur to take command of the Third Cavalry, and he has command of six hundred troops. And on July 28, 1932, MacArthur orders Patton's troops to advance 
on these veterans with tear gas and bayonets. And Patton did not want to do this, but he has to follow his orders. But he later said, you know, he recognized the legitimacy of the veterans' complaints. He actually, a few days earlier, refused to issue orders to employ armed forces against yeah. the veterans. Like These are men that fought for their country in the First World War. They're not necessarily violent. Why are we sending them out of there? But, um, you know, he had to, he, he hated it. He said it was the most uh, distasteful thing he ever had to do. But he also knew that he had to do it. Follow orders. He had his followers. Yeah. And he does believe he saved lives and property by doing so. But things could have got even worse. This is one of those footnotes in history. You have MacArthur. You have Patton. Eisenhower's there too. Eisenhower. They're all there. Ten years later, they're all seen as heroes. If you go back and listen to our podcast too, Eisenhower and Patton very much shy away from this. Like their heads yeah. are down. They don't want to be doing this. It's not what they want the, to do. Exactly. Versus MacArthur rides in in an automobile, you know, the top down. Well, he, he was he was showmanship. He's, we we yeah, haven't done MacArthur there. either. We but MacArthur's, MacArthur's all about showmanship. He likes that image and stuff like that. Yeah. Eisenhower, not that much, which is strange because he wanted to become president. But this time yeah. he's more out of the public eye. And Patton, too, he's more he's going to do what's required of him. He doesn't care for the press, you know? Yeah. So World War II, let's get into World War II. So United States, as everyone knows, it stays isolationist for the first couple of years of the war. German invasion of Poland that winds up happening September 1st, 1939. U.S. starts mobilizing. We slowly mobilize. However, congressionally, we're still like, no, 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 no. Now, basically, we have these war games. That's what they call it. They're not firing on each other, really. We didn't even have bullets to fire oh, each no, other no. at this point. But they're, they're just seeing maneuverability, who has the better tactics and stuff like that. And Patton's doing really well here. He lost the first war game in the early 40. Uh, 1940, and then he's like, forget this. So then he winds up coming back in December 1940, stages a high-profile exercise, like 1,000 tanks and vehicles. He winds up driving from Columbus, Georgia, to Panama City, Florida, and back. But the key here is he winds up getting his own private pilot's license. Yeah, After he loses the first battle, I mean, the first you know war game, he's like, I need to see this better. I need to see the maneuvers better and be able to observe the movements of the vehicles. So he gets himself a pilot's license, and the next time, when there's war games, he flies up by himself so he could conduct the actual war games from the different vantage point. And that's kind of how he thought going forward. Like, how does this look, you know, five steps ahead as opposed to just what I'm seeing in front of me, which is what makes him very successful. In the Tennessee maneuver that we talked about, there was another general by the name of Drum and Patton captures him. Yep. And the umpires of the war games like, no, you can't do that. So give him back, like let him go. And it, what it did was it basically made people realize that maybe this drum guy was not the next general, not, not fit for field command. And so yeah. this is really what's getting Patton to look at being field command. And he actually establishes a desert training center in Riverside, in Riverside Country, California, right after Pearl Harbor to run training exercises for desert combat. He knows that the American forces are going to be going to North Africa, right, first. Yeah. Because they're not even talking about Europe yet. That's not. We yeah, have to no. cut off the Axis powers in North Africa. And so he knows. So he's they're running training maneuvers almost right away, within a few weeks of Pearl Harbor. He's got this desert training center in California up and running, and he's taken over um, as a commander pretty quickly. So Operation Torch, which is the Allied invasion of French North Africa, the landings themselves, I think, take place in November of 42. And the U.S. Second Corps winds up losing to the German Africa Corps, right? Commanded by the very infamous Erwin Rommel. And that's well, yeah, the well, Battle yeah. of Glasserine Pass, right? Yeah, so that, that's the kind of the first time they met the Battle of the Glasserine Pass, which I've seen a lot of lectures on, pretty interesting lectures. It's the first time American soldiers met German soldiers in combat. Because when they established their beachheads on November 8th of 1942, they were opposed by the Vichy French. French. So yeah. you're like, that's, yeah. <laughs> you know, it was fierce resistance, yeah. obviously. But they take over Casablanca on November 11th, which is Patton's birthday. 
to negotiate a um, armistice. And then, you know, they're feeling good about themselves, but again, they're not facing that like strong battle hardened troops and the battle of uh, Kesserin passes where they actually do for the first time. But what they learn in any historians who talk about that battle is that Americans really learned a lot from that battle. Not like what not to do. And yeah. they learned from, and that was something very, that they saw about American soldiers is they would adapt very quickly. They, a lot of times, you know, these commanders wouldn't make the same mistakes twice. What, was Patton fully in charge in the Catherine Pass? No, he no, he, I don't he was think not, so. No. He was, no. no, he was not. He it took was over right name, after, right? Yeah, it was a man by the name of um, Lloyd um, Federdahl was a commanding officer at that time uh, when he was against Rommel like in the Africa course, yeah. and Patton replaces him right after this. He's promoted to yeah. lieutenant right at, lieutenant general right after that, but he serves with uh, Omar Bradley. And then going forward, that's when they start winning, yeah. right? Well, he um, starts putting in basically, yeah, he's introducing like strict orders, strict adherence to military protocol. They're doing, um, and he also rewarded men for their accomplishments. Once he does really well in North Africa, he relinquishes command to Bradley and he gets back to Casablanca when he starts to plan for Operation Husk. And that is Which the is, Allied invasion of Sicily. Sicily, yeah. What they start to see is that the competition between the British and the Americans. And yes. then that's really what Patton is known for also, is that he kept on thinking that U.S. troops are going to be sidelined, right, and stuff like that. They're not going to be allowed to actually show their worth because everything's going to go for the British with Montgomery and stuff like that, right? So Patton's like, you know, no, the Americans are here to fight too. We're not here to just reinforce the British. That's why he leaves that area because he wants to go work on the planning this invasion of, uh, of Sicily. It's the Sicily campaign and the North Africa campaign that makes the Germans know who he is. Yeah. And that's very important because that's something that's going to come before after D-Day. Patton gets in trouble, but before yeah. D-Day, when he's still involved in D-Day in a different way. Yep, which we'll get into. I'm Ken Harbaugh, host of Burn the Boats from Evergreen Podcasts. I interview political leaders and influencers, folks like award-winning journalist Soledad O'Brien and conservative columnist Bill Kristol about the choices they confront when failure is not an option. I won't agree with everyone I talk to, but I respect anyone who believes in something enough to risk everything for it. Because history belongs to those willing to burn the boats. Episodes are out every other week wherever you get your podcasts. So Patton's 1st Armored Corps is officially redesignated the 7th Army, and he leads his 7th Army. Uh, like you said, there's a lot of headbutting with the British General Sir Bernard Montgomery, British 8th Army. So Patton's 7th Army and the British 8th Army kind of butt heads for the sheer reason that the British feel like they've been there fighting the Germans since, you know, 39. And here's Patton. Like, he feels like, I know what I'm doing. Like, let me be. And the Americans have only been in this for a few months. Also during this time, as you mentioned before, he gets in, in trouble a few times. Once he ignores orders like he did in World War I. Uh, he was not supposed to take a specific target. And although he was getting the messages not to take that target, he took it anyway and then simply said, I didn't get the message of not taking a target. Was, so that went back to this Montgomery, Sir Bernard Montgomery of the British guy. It was like, oh, this, these Americans. But what really becomes an issue here is that while he is in Sicily during the Sicily campaign, uh, this is a controversy that's initially taken care of by the army until the news gets wind of it. And that's usually what happens in these situations. On August 3rd, 1943, Patton winds up seeing wounded soldiers, right, that are being prepared for evacuation at a local army base hospital. And he verbally abuses and then slaps 
a private named Charles H. Cole, who's about to be evacuated. The guy was suffering from battle fatigue, which is what they called yeah. back then. Today, we call that... Post-traumatic stress disorder. Post-traumatic, yeah. yeah, PTSD. Yeah, so that happens on August 3rd, 1943. Then they're just then a few again. days later, seven days later, he does it again to Private G. Bennett under similar circumstances. He orders them both back to the front line. There's some debate whether he actually pulled his gun out and threatened to shoot him right there. But he did slap them. He did argue them. And word of this actually reaches Eisenhower, who then privately uh, reprimands him and prompt says that he has to apologize. And Patton does apologize to both soldiers individually, as well as doctors who witnessed what happened. And later to all the soldiers under the command in several speeches. And Eisenhower kind of tried to sweep this under the rug, but it made it onto some radio programs. This has become kind of a scandal. Well, yeah, because the these, are, these are veterans that he's slapping calling them wussies or whatever and he's like go fight i mean today we understand ptsd back then what he did is supposedly he pointed at soldiers nearby that had like amputated legs and they were like physically hurt and he goes you're not hurt those guys are hurt like you're going back to fight he called them cowards he hated cowardice that's something that he just could not understand he just couldn't understand it remember this is a guy who is headstrong and maybe had some head trauma but you know who do this his whole life just was like you lead by example you go for it and these guys are saying that they can't fight because they're tired. That's what was called battle fatigue. Obviously, it was more than that. But he, he couldn't fathom that. That was not something that Patton even understood or even wanted to understand. So um, what it does, it, it costs him command. He doesn't command a force for the next 11 months. And then Omar Bradley is actually – He takes um, over. For him he takes seven. over. He's, yeah. he's put in the first um, – command of the first army. And he had to go to England to prepare for Operation Overlord, which is D-Day. The decision really affected Patton. Well, yeah, so he's put in command of a new U.S. Third Army in England. And it's a field army that was assigned to prepare soldiers for combat in Europe. But it's at this time where it becomes very evident that the Germans really only respect one American general that they are afraid of, and that is George S. Patton. Yeah. So the, and they don't believe that. And I'm sorry to interrupt you, but they don't believe the reports they're seeing. Because, you know, they're reading the American newspapers that, of course, that Patton is taken out of whatnot. command. They're like, they're like, there's no way that they're not going to have Patton lead this invasion because they know the invasion is coming that Patton's not going to lead the, lead the, the invasion of Europe they don't see it there's no way the Americans are going to take one of their best generals and not put him in because he slapped a couple soldiers like the Germans don't believe it. they think it's just like fake propaganda that they're trying to trick the Germans really they're like no really in actuality Patton's not involved in D-Day he's not going to be directly involved in D-Day it's just not going to happen yeah. And the he British thought, he, he was too impulsive too. Eisenhower yeah. was worried about that. The British network of double agents makes sure that the German intelligence is basically fed these false reports that Patton is actually not yes. really put to the side which he was. Yes. And yeah. he's building up this army that's going to attack France in a different spot, which is known as the ghost or phantom the army. The phantom army, yeah. In the United States did a whole bunch to make this believable right they had fake tanks like they were basically like hollywood made fake oh, tanks yeah. fake barracks it was basically the fake um the second infantry division and then it leaks out that Patton's leading this so that's really what the german hierarchy is like well this is this is the spearhead this is going to be yeah. the beginning it's going to be Patton. it's going to be this um second infantry division that's going to land and stuff like that the germans actually flew reconnaissance planes over this area and they made it look like it was actually a army base to, to take attention in tank divisions away from protecting Normandy, which is where it was actually going to go. It was going to be Calais, I believe. That's where they yep. it, it was a smaller distance. And that's really where the Germans were throwing everything to be fortified. So much of that, even, and we talk about this in our D-Day podcast, and anyone who studies it, even when the Allies invade on June 6, 1944, they stayed in the Germans are like, no, we're waiting at Calais. This, that's a diversionary invasion 
we're going to wait by Calais because that's where it's going to happen. They, they, it's really they literally think Patton. Patton's going to yeah. come there. Yep. Yeah, they're yeah. just waiting for Patton and he never shows. And they're like, oh, I guess it really was at Normandy. By then it's too late. The beach has established, you know, just go watch yeah. Band of Brothers. It's on Netflix yeah. now. Great show. But yeah, so this was known as Operation Fortitude. Basically trick them. So Patton being demoted for 11 months was actually used to help secure the beachhead on Normandy. Oh, and because, it definitely did. It, it, it definitely did. Yeah, because the fact that he was training near Dover, this phantom army, it really made it seem like they were going to attack across the channel to Calais and not Normandy. So the German 15th Army just like stayed at Calais. Like you said, they're like, yeah. we are not going not anywhere. But he does wind up, obviously, once we land in Normandy, Patton's third army is put in command and he formed on the right of the Allied land forces, and he becomes operational on August 1st, 1944. And boom, Patton starts racing through France into Germany. And actually, he does so well. <laughs> He's so quick, right? They said the speed of Patton's advance of his units, first of all, relied really heavily on air reconnaissance, right? Tactical air support. So there Which was- is what he learned from his war games. Yep. So it's like always from above, always like bombers would bomb his way so that way he was always cleared he would send these infantry units i mentioned before to also clean any land in front of his tanks so his troops were moving really really fast actually his advance was so fast that his third army traversed 60 miles in just two weeks and ultimately he started running out of gas i mean he came to a halt on august 31st the supply lines were getting too stretched yep it just everyone's like he's going too fast and he was just racing towards germany Third Army halts after months go through September uh, of 44 because they don't have yeah. gas. They wind up uh, fighting the Battle of the Mets. It's a big deal. Some people believe that what Patton should have done was pass this area, pass it up and just keep on going once he got his supplies, but that he was too stubborn to want to lose to the Germans. So therefore, he stayed there and suffered heavy casualties. But that's, you know, again... That's one of like blemish on his record. Well, he went, we had the what if and stuff like that. These are lesser knowns. What really he's known for in Germany or in the European campaign is the Battle of the Bulge, which is basically when the Germans try to break through the last ditch effort really to, I'm not going to say win the war, but get some sort of favorable peace negotiations in the war. Offensive effort going across Belgium, Luxembourg, into northern France, really break the American lines. And they actually do bend it. That's why it's known as the Battle of the Bulge. And Eisenhower called a meeting of all his senior commanders to really figure out what's going to happen on the morning of December 19th to plan a strategy in response to the assault. Patton's third army is going to be used in this counteroffensive to the- To save to the troops. Basically to go and save the 101st Airborne, which has been holding out in- um, Bastogne. In, in, in Bastogne, which is, I believe, shown very great detail and very well in Band of Brothers, like we talked about before. Yep. And then they wait for Patton eventually to get there. Under air cover, he's able to finally get there. And he actually meets with them, and then that breaks the German advance in December. Well, December, but it's also the fact that he does this. Remember, this was a, a surprise attack, right? The yes. fact that Hitler was able to, under the cover of snow and and sleet and really terrible weather that grounded planes and reconnaissance, Hitler moved basically most of his army. Allies didn't really expect anything else to happen. They just thought they were yep. advanced to Germany and think the Germans had were capable of doing a counterattack like this. So Eisenhower asks Patton right away, and as soon as this happens, uh, they get on the phone. Eisenhower asks Patton, how long will it take for you to disengage six divisions of your third army and race as fast as you possibly can to relieve the U.S. 101st Airborne Division? And uh, Patton, all he replies is, as soon as you're through with me. 
It's like, what? Like Eisenhower was like, dude, this isn't like funny. And he, you know, yeah. these guys know each other. So he tells them like, listen, if you leave right now, you will not have the amount of divisions that you need to actually do anything to help these American soldiers. And Patton, interesting enough, said, no, I already have a contingency operation plan. Like I was ready for this just in case it happened. So he convinces Eisenhower that he already has divisions, six divisions he could pull from or the 4th Armored Division, the 3rd Armored Division, he's already talked to these commanders that if, you know, if, if Poop hits the fan, they will give him command of their divisions. And all of a sudden, he's racing uh, with six full divisions. And he winds up actually getting there in time, repelling the German attack. And sure enough, you know, if, if you have to think of anybody that could prevent the last German uprising, it would be Patton. And now it's basically advancing on to Germany. This is what yeah. he's doing. By February, the Germans are in full retreat. He captures what's left of the German Third Army. He actually kills or wounds 99,000 soldiers and captures another 140,000 when he bypasses uh, Trier. At first, it was said this is going to take four divisions to capture. He captures it with two, right? And he yeah. basically says, you know, I captured it with two divisions. Do you want me to give it back? And they're like, shut up. Like, they're getting kind of annoyed with he's like little, these like sarcastic things that he's doing he gets in a little bit of trouble too on march 22nd when they cross the rhine river you make impromptu bridges bridges he he tells the press that as he was crossing he was urinating in the water yeah and they're just like uh like how it rubs some people the wrong way basically other people are gonna laugh at it and if you know Patton, they're like well that that's Patton. like that's that's george well, do. he was in Sicily. There was some farmer that two mules were going across his yeah, bridge yeah. and he was trying to get across the bridge on his tanks. The farmer was like not rushing the mules and Patton is like, get your mules off of this bridge. And the guy wouldn't do it. So he basically took out a gun, shot the two mules, the mules. Yeah. ordered his men to just push them over to the side with the tanks and kept on driving. Uh, you know, that's kind of the way he was. I've actually been to the Patton Museum located uh, on the grounds of Fort Knox. So it's kind of hard to get into. You have to go through like a clearance against Fort Knox. I've been there a couple of years ago, but it's a really cool museum. And they have his famous guns because he used to have custom made uniforms. He used to have custom made ivory handled guns. What really winds up happening once he gets to Germany, crosses to Germany, uh, the war with Germany is over shortly thereafter. And at first, Patton really wants to go to the Pacific Theater, right? He actually wants yeah, he, he, to be moved. Yeah. Yeah. And, he, and so Patton basically, just to backtrack a little bit, I saw this interesting bit of information. So his combat was in, they were, he's the third army that he commanded, was in continuous combat for 281 days. And by doing that, they crossed 24 rivers, captured 81,000 square miles of territory, like 12,000 t- cities and towns. And they have claimed to have killed and captured 1.8 million German soldiers. That's six times their strength. So they wow. were just sweeping through like a hot knife through butter at this point. And he wanted more. Like Patton's like, he was begging Marshall, let's put him into the Pacific Theater. And they're like, no, that's not going to happen for a variety of reasons. They just, they weren't using tanks in the Pacific Theater at this point. No, no, island hopping. So Stimson, Secretary of War Henry L. Stimson decides that Patton is not going to the Pacific. He's actually going to return to Europe and he's going to have an army assignment. They basically, what they do is they make Patton or appoint him as the military governor of Bavaria. Mm-hmm. But his whole idea was to lead the Third Army in like denazifying the population. That was his big thing, right? And then he starts getting a little bit like erratic and stuff. Oh, yeah. Some of the things he, oh, starts, he starts saying. Supposedly cheating on his wife, right? We saw that one yeah. with a much younger woman. But at the same time, this is where you get to his controversy. And the controversy stems from the fact that as a military governor of the region, right, he winds up kind of privately initially at first and then eventually a little more louder, expressing the fact that 
now that Germany's defeated, the new enemy is really Soviet yeah. Union. He said, listen, we weren't really trying to denazify Germany. He was basically yeah. saying that, you know, the, the Germans are the only decent people in Europe. He was against the Nuremberg trials, right? He's like, well, that was war. What happened in war happens in war. So he, he said, yeah, I'm frankly opposed to this war criminal stuff. He didn't believe there was such a thing as war crimes that you do what you have to do in war. And he believed that Russia will take Europe over if we don't, if it's not stopped. So yeah. he literally said, as you mentioned, Germans are the only decent people. And that really rubs some people the wrong way. If you think about it, millions died in this war. He's like, the Germans are, they're decent people in Europe. We really, we need to take these Germans. We need to arm them again. And we need to go after the Russians. He said, listen, the Germans had a good war machine. We can rebuild it and send them at the Russians. Like that's yeah. what he thought. And that ultimately got him in a lot of trouble. There's also an issue with Jews. Do you see that one? Eisenhower said, you know, you displace these Nazi or basically Nazi criminals or Nazi soldiers out of these houses and they're going to be living quarters for Jews that we've rescued from field hospital stuff for the, from the, some of the concentration camps. And Patton just didn't do that. He also forced them to share living quarters with former Nazis. He wanted yeah. to keep them detained because releasing them could lead to more violence. Yeah. So he, he actually he, kept the Jews detained. Yeah. And he called Jewish people locusts. He saw them as like this insect. So he, he it was a problem. Yeah, to say the least. The media finds out about his actions in Europe, and he's facing a lot of questions from the press about the fact that he doesn't really want to denazify post-war Germany. He's getting questions about the Jews from the Jewish community. And ultimately, Eisenhower winds up ordering him to hold like a press conference, like correct your statements, just apologize, say you didn't say these things, say you're going to be good to Jews, say that Germans are bad people. So he's like, fine, I'll hold this conference. And he winds up holding the press conference, but then he simply repeats what he had been saying this whole time. So now there's this heated exchange well, they with think Eisenhower. He was they think he was delusional at this point. I don't mean to interrupt. A lot of historians yeah. have said he's delusional by this point. His head trauma, everything that was going on, he's had a complete mental breakdown more or less. Yep. What it said, he was so into war that all of a sudden in peace, he didn't know what to do with himself. He didn't want to do it with himself, yeah. And really, what was the final straw is when he publicly said America had been fighting the wrong enemy. The wrong enemy, yeah. That we should be fighting <laughs> like, Russia instead. Yeah, we Being fought the enemy. wrong enemy. No, but you just fought, spent four years, you know, fighting Nazi Germany, Hitler, and now all of a sudden, like, we should have never fought Germany, we should have fought Russia. Like, it's just, you can't say that. Eisenhower winds up returning to the United States, becomes the chief of staff of the U.S. Army following the war. Patton is appointed interim commander of U.S. Army in Europe, um, which is really like a desk job at that point, November 11th, yeah. 1945. And he stays there pretty much till the end, which is a month later. He's invited for a hunting trip. Pheasant hunting. Exactly. Uh, his 1938 Cadillac limousine, as, as he is riding to this hunting trip, um, it collides with an American army truck at low speed, really. And it's interesting, too, because if you notice, most of the people in this accident were like not even flying. really injured, yeah. right? Yeah. But Patton winds up flies, flying through the car, hits his head on the glass um, that separates the front and the back seat, like you would have like in the limo. And then he winds up bleeding profusely, and he couldn't breathe. You know, he's taken to a hospital. And from that point forward, they realize he has a compression fracture. His vertebrae, he's got but... a broken neck. He has a broken yeah. neck from the neck down. Yeah. Bends the next 12 days in spinal traction. And he basically says, this is a hell of a way to die. Because they tell him, listen, there's no chance. Remember, this is 1945. There's no chance you're going to walk again. There's no chance you're going to ride a horse again. Any sort of life that you remembered is gone. Yeah, so he winds up dying just 12 days later from a heart failure. 
on December 21st, 1945, at the age of 60. So it's pretty young. The controversy and conspiracy theories emerged primarily. Yeah, they, they had to get rid of them, yeah. Kind of come out primarily because of Patton's outspoken and controversial views, specifically towards the end of the war, with one theory going as far as saying that he was assassinated by the American government because of the criticism of Soviet Union. Other people said that maybe Soviet Union ordered the hit on him. Because there's lack of any concrete evidence to support any conspiracy theory, except the fact that the car went off to the side because the brakes weren't working right and it crashed. Like, it just seems too simple of a death to a personality such as George S. Patton, if that makes sense. Yeah. He's still considered one of the greatest, most feared American generals of all time. You said you had some interesting quotes. Well, I had some interesting quotes and stuff. Well, one, he had some interesting views on race. So in one of his, we got to say his family roots was um, in the Confederacy. So he did write that, you know, that African-Americans were good soldiers, but he expressed his belief at the time that they could never um, think fast enough to fight in armor. He changes that later on, addressing the 761st Tank Battalion. He says, you know, I would never ask you to do anything if you weren't good. I have nothing but the best in my army. I don't care what color you are, as long as you go and kill those kraut sons of bitches. That's basically what he says. He's like, don't let... He's like, don't let me down. So, so he, that kind of changes. He has probably one of his more um, famous quotes. He says that the object of war is not to die for your country, but to make the other yeah, bastard yeah. die for his. That's yeah, probably yeah. one of his more um, famous quotes that you see him out there. Uh, may God have mercy from. for my enemies, because I won't. That kind yes. of sums him up. That sums him up yes. pretty much in a nutshell right there. Yes. And a lot of his quotes are used in sports. Like, like when there is fear of failure, there will be failure. Yes. Anyway, so... Obviously, as we always do with these uh, personalities, we are glossing over, you know, we could have a podcast just on his death itself or how he was viewed by, you know, his Axis leaders, the, his enemies. But there is a lot to George S. Patton. If you guys want to look up stuff, please feel free. You know, there's so many things out there. And if you are anywhere near uh, Fort Knox, I would definitely go and check out his museum. It's really, really cool. So I think that pretty much concludes our George S. Patton yeah, I think it's a good good uh, little sum up there. Yep. So if you guys need to contact us, please feel free to do so at www.history3teacherstalkingpodcast.com. Make sure you guys follow us. Tell your friends about us if you enjoyed this podcast. Make sure you leave us a review and click that subscribe button. We really do appreciate it. And I guess that's it. We'll see you guys next week. Stay safe, everybody. I hope everyone enjoyed our podcast, and if you would like to email us, you can do so at historyteacherspodcast at gmail.com. History is complicated. The story of human progress is long, messy, and riddled with controversies big and small. On Conflicted, we dive headfirst into history's most infamous events and contentious figures. We try and untangle the good from the bad, the fact from the fiction, and the monsters from the misunderstood. Was Genghis Khan a murderous butcher or a civic pioneer? Did the Allied powers go too far in firebombing the German city of Dresden at the twilight of World War II? And how did the Marquis de Sade acquire such a sinister reputation? And was any of it true? These are just a few of the tough questions we wrestle with and investigate on Conflicted. So if you love history or just enjoy a good story, 
please join me, your host, Zach Cornwell, for a fascinating new topic each and every month. Conflicted, a history podcast is available on Spotify, Apple, or wherever else you get your podcasts. I hope to see you soon.